Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth. This is Season 5, Episode 11, Queen Energy, with Saida Wright. Saida is a singer based in Portland, Oregon. She's known for her magnetic, booming vocals and has performed with Prince as a member of his new power generation and with Liv Warfield. Some of her studio credits include Derek McDuffie and Kingdom Sound, Mother's Favorite Child, and Max Ribner, to name just a few. She is a legendary soloist with the Oregon Symphony and has been a regular participant in our annual Blues Festival as well as many, many other music festivals all around the Pacific Northwest. Her music and her passion are electrifying, and I think we can all draw inspiration from her magnificent queen energy and dedication to creating a life of freedom where art and music can flourish. Here's Saida. Hello. My name is Saida Wright. I am a singer, songwriter, vocal coach, mother of one amazing son, wife, daughter, friend, lover of all things love, and that's me. I was born with song, I will say. Um, it's in my DNA. Um, I think I, uh, as a young girl, as a baby, really, and th these are stories, right, that are coming to me. Uh, my godmother told me that <laughs> my first words were songs. Do I know that for sure? No, I don't. But um, do I believe that I was singing jingles while I'm sitting in my high chair? Yes. Like that was, I resonated with the sounds. And so before I could probably really form a sentence, I'm, I'm humming and singing. Um, and... Seeing that echoed in my son really, really makes me believe her. <laughs> uh, you know, with hit rhythm in his in his body, in his mouth, he was speaking and singing rhythm, really just at a young age. So, it, you know, maybe about ten months speaking and singing rhythm. And so, do I believe that I was sitting somewhere singing <laughs> "Uh Oh Gettios," you know, from the Spaghetti-O commercials? Yes, I do. But I grew up around singers. My whole family, you know, are, are most of my family's musical. I won't say the whole, but most of them are musically inclined. I grew up watching my great grandfather and great grandmother lead worship at Maranatha Church and watching my grandmother and all her sisters and watching them, you know, hit the stage and do piano and sing. And harmony was always around me. On 12th and Skidmore, that church is actually still there. It's called Maranatha Church of God. That's not where my family started. I want to say we started at Vancouver Avenue Baptist, but we moved to Maranatha, and that's my earliest recollection of, of church and community was Maranatha Church. And so I grew up on the third pew, as I, was, I tell everybody. That's where my grandmother sat, on the third pew, surrounded by music. And I saw my heroes, the people in my family that I loved, get on that stage and minister to people and love on people through song. And you see people crying and you see people rejoicing. And that's normal. That's a normal thing for me. So that's where I, the journey of sound began for me. It was definitely in the church. It was definitely, I say, watching that on the stage. But let me insert this though. In my home, there was a lot of music. My mother loved, you know, funk. 
She loves soul music, right? So Earth, Wind, and Fire is pumping at the house. And they partied. And there's good music happening. You know, Stevie's on. Patti LaBelle. My mama loved Patti LaBelle, okay? Prince. Like, music is happening in the house. So I'm having this wonderful experience of gospel on one hand, but I'm also at the house enjoying the greats of music. And so I've always just been surrounded by it. My mother had a great voice, even though she didn't think so. My mom and my aunties, they all sitting around singing and doing their thing. I intentionally went to Jeff. So I did music all through middle school. I played violin. I was in choir and I loved it. I got to high school and and your violin fell off. But I, I, I like to mention that because that was huge in training my ear. I wasn't meant to be a violinist, but the amount of ear training it had to get from doing that was fabulous. Set me up in a great way for, for high school. I had a couple of great teachers <laughs> at Jefferson. Uh, we had a great time. Back in the day, Jefferson was a magnet school, right? So we had magnet schools in Portland, Oregon where you could decide which school you wanted to go to based on what your interests were. Jefferson was a performing arts magnet school. We had full production studio with satellites and TV cameras. There was several dance studios, complete with the floors that that had soft impact. There were dark rooms for photography. So not only taking those pictures, but they were developing them themselves. There was full, you know, auto shop and woodworking. We had a beautiful band room, right? Um, And a choir room. The whole building really was dedicated to the arts. It was connected to our stage and theater. You just saw a lot of amazing artists come through the school. By the time I got there, though, you started to see the decline, specifically in the music department. Our dance department was always well-funded, whereas some of the other arts programs begin to not be. However, you have a bunch of interestingly misfitted, unruly church kids who were going to sing no matter what. All we need is is a a space to sit down and meet, and we're going to sing a song. Um, And so there was an interesting fight. It was a beautiful fight in our department to keep music alive at Jefferson. Our, Our choir wasn't eligible for a lot of competitions, but we came and handed them their tales in what we did well, yes. right? So we would come and, and we would sing. We would go from, you know, doing our classical piece or doing a jazz piece and then turn around and wail on gospel. And that was that magic sauce that other people didn't have. Yeah. They couldn't do it. They wanted to sing gospel. They were blown away. Like, oh my goodness, how did they go from doing this piece over here, you know, singing A-Train to kill it in what we did. You know, we're going to do some Steely Dan on you. So, yeah, you might have smashed us with that that Count Basie or whatever you were doing. But you can't rock out like we do. It was just this beautiful, like, versatility in us that I loved. And it gave me a pride. It gave me a sense of be great at everything. Don't limit yourself to one thing. A lot of us don't have the technical skill or haven't been given that throughout the years. You know, a lot of these kids, when they're coming to competition, they have been in choir since middle school or elementary school, learning how to read music. They're already coming with this really interesting knowledge base that inner city communities, we don't have that unless somebody was able to afford that for you. And so I had a little bit, I was blessed in the sense of people identified early that I was serious about music. I had a wonderful teacher, her name is Suzanne Lundy. 
who saw that, she said, wow, no, no, this young girl is serious. And not only was I learning my music, but I was learning other people's parts and telling them, mm -mm, your part's wrong. And I actually ended up singing tenor because we didn't have no tenors. I, I didn't realize that that was unusual to hear everybody's parts and tell everybody you're wrong. <laughs> but um, it was me and, and she identified. She said, wow, this young lady is serious, but I couldn't read. Well, you took violin, how could you not read? We learned the Suzuki method. It's based on your fingering and not based on the sheet music. If I'm correlating A, which is my A string, it's A, one, two, three, and four. So when I look at the sheet music, it says one, two, three, four. So I know da da da, da and not A, B, C, D, E. Yeah, so it doesn't correlate to other instrumentalists. So though I can look at a B, and know that that is A1. That's not a B to me, that's an A1. Sheet music wasn't foreign, but it was foreign. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't go to a competition and sight read, back, bringing it back around. Mm -hmm. I would not get a scholarship. I would not place in a competition because if they put sheet music in front of me, I could not sing it. Um, I could play it, I could plunk it, but I couldn't sing it necessarily and, and comprehend what I was singing. It was like a foreign language, I, I, I didn't know it. so. However, I had a wonderful teacher again, Sue, who helped me through that. And she would sing my part for me on tape, just mine. Mm -hmm. And she'd play it and she sang it. And then she would give me tapes. She enrolled me in competition for Allstate and All Northwest Jazz. So I went to Allstate Jazz and Allstate Concert Choir. I couldn't read the sheet music. So she sang my parts and played them for me. And I studied them and learned them against the music. So... I could hear and correlate, okay, this is where this is, and I could see it on the page and know where I was on the page. I just technically couldn't read it. That was a blessing. Allstate was fabulous. The next year, I ended up doing All-Northwest, which I don't know any other kids from Jefferson that have gone to Allstate and All-Northwest mm -hmm. jazz. And so she saw that, like, this girl is serious. Back to Derek McDuffie. Derek came in during those years, Sue's last year. So I think it was when I was going to All Northwest, when he came in. Funny thing, I looked at this young guy and he looked old to me, unbeknownst to us. He was only like two years older than us. He was 35 in my mind, clearly 35. And he's country, he's coming from like Mississippi, so he has this thick accent and you're just like, who's this guy? Some of the other kids, they gave him a lot of, of trouble because we really loved our gospel teacher from the year before. And so he came into... Um, a rich legacy and had to fill really big shoes uh, where we were doing some pretty complicated gospel music. And Derek, I feel like, was very sweet, great smile, got a little shy and gave us music that was more simplistic that he felt worked well for the voices. Everything meshes together, everything gels. Eventually, you just have fun. And so we did. We had a great time. We traveled. We took some trips and Gospel went well, and I believe, I don't know how long Derek stayed there, but they became fast friends. And I say they, Derek McDuffie and his wife, Delessa McDuffie, we became really close friends. I think we took a trip to Mount Hood or something. And she and I, you know, two wonderfully plus size women, uh, looked out at all that snow and was like, uh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I said, girl, come on. <laughs> so I grabbed her arm, and we've been arm in arm ever since. I didn't apply to college. Um, I was going to go to Mount Hood Community College after doing All State on Northwest. 
I thought I was going to do Mount Hood Community College and do jazz with with a group called Genesis, uh, led by Dave Bardoon. Uh, Love Dave Bardoon. But that's not what God had for me. I had an outer body experience at All Northwest. I sang a solo. I had to sing a blues song. And I I left my body. I, I went somewhere else. I don't know what happened. But all of a sudden, this thing opened up in me. I just went in a zone. And when I came out, the the roar of the crowd, and I saw my teacher crying, like, what just happened? Mm-hmm. It was that first glimpse into who I was to be. And so I wasn't going to go to college. I was just going to go do the jazz thing because here we are. I have this amazing experience. And they have a HBCU college fair at Portland Community College. And so I go and they ask me to sing the Black National Anthem and the National Anthem. And a representative from Clark Atlanta University says, we're going to see about getting you a scholarship in a room full of educators and administrators. You're going to see about getting me a scholarship then. They followed through and followed up. And I ended up getting a scholarship to Clark Atlanta University off of singing those two songs. Luckily, I had a decent GPA. I think I was like, a, I don't know, 3-3 or something like that. AP classes. Like, you know, I, I was fit for college. Yeah. I just hadn't, I, there was no money for me to go. But like I said, God said, this is where you're going. And I have to give a shout out to Mr. Halsey, who is no longer with us. Rest in love, Mr. Halsey. Gave me a scholarship. I sent my audition tape in and he made me one of his premier soloists. And I had to earn that scholarship. I earned uh, that scholarship. But he taught me texture, tone. He taught me how to paint with music. So that's what I learned there. I got to sing in Carnegie Hall. He taught us in colors. Each sound has a color and a feeling. If he wanted a bright sound, he would say, I want yellow. He would flick his wrist a particular way. And we knew he wanted it light and airy, or he wanted it brighter. So bright would correlate to how we form a vowel. So if he wanted it darker, blue, maroon, he would move his hand a particular way. And he said, I want it deeper than that. Give me indigo. He would talk to us in color and equate the color to sound. I understood it. I saw color when we sang. He painted with sound. You know, a little green here and a little yellow there and a little pink. And, and we're going to add some white in there and it's going to be bright. And oh, but I want it deeper here. So we want a richer sound. We want a richer color. Form the vowel this way because I want it. Or we're going to go from here to here. Like, and you just knew it was, there was kinetic, it was a kinetic connection between his hands, our voices, and the picture we were painting. I was working at the bank. Shout out to U.S. Bank. I was turning 30. And, and that was like, mm, you turn 30, what are you doing with your life? Figure it out. What, what are you going to do? I, I was coming up on my five-year mark because I started in, in 05 at the bank. What are you going to do? Are you going to stay with the company and go for that 30-year retirement, right? Or what else? And I was like, I'm not a banker. I, 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 can, I can do banking. You can do numbers. I can do numbers. <laughs> I'm a great teller. But I'm not a banker. That's not who I am. I'm a singer. I'm a musician. I'm a storyteller. I knew I was going to have to pivot. It took me two years, though. I didn't leave. I I left the bank, actually, in in 2011. I got fed up with needing to ask people for time off. 
to go sing. That was just like, you're crazy. I'm going to, opportunities were coming, I'm going to sing. And then I started getting a lot of clients that wanted voice lessons. And so as I was the worship leader at my church, people were wanting to come and get those lessons. I was teaching, I was, you know, training up the praise team. And so I had a steady stream of clients that were coming in. And so I realized like, okay, I can work teaching voice and then I can do music and gig and studio and all the things that I'm equipped to do. Um, And so I decided uh, in 2011 that I was going to step away and go do music full time. (laughs) That imploded quickly and sent me on a very interesting spiral where in 2012, I lost everything. I lost my car. um, I was homeless or houseless, I should say. You know, I just felt like a terrible mother. Just it was probably the lowest of the low for me um, in that season. It was a beautiful lesson, though. It was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful lesson uh, of, of, of loving myself and being okay with the journey, being okay with failure, that everything's not going to be a success. You are going to take those chances and you're going to fall on your face and that's okay, but you'll get up again because the great successes that happened after that, right? 2013, you know, I got back on my feet and I was able to move into my own apartment and, you know, I had another great job because I had to go back to work, which was fine because I have a son that I have to take care of. And then the next year I'm doing a TED talk (laughs) or I'm traveling, you know, with Liv Warfield to, you know, uh, perform, you know, with her, with her for her sophomore album. And so just, you know, that, that time in between 2011 and 2012, where I just felt like I lost everything. I was at rock bottom. I was depressed. Um, it really was nowhere to go from up. You know what I mean? Like it was that idea of, okay, I don't think it gets worse than this. Mm-hmm. So what does God have to say to me? And God told me to love myself. Mm-hmm. And that was actually my message for the TED Talk was, you know, love, yes, love God. That's wonderful. Or have your, your spiritual experience, right? Worship, do that. But love yourself. Love yourself next. How can you love other people? And that's what I was, I was so good at ministering to people. I was so good at helping and doing things for other people. But I was terrible at loving me, terrible at giving myself the same grace I would give other people. And so that for me was the biggest lesson of you need to be patient with yourself. You need to be okay with the process of loving yourself so that you can get to the next level. And it was just a beautiful time. And I'm grateful for it because it really did set me up it leveled me out for the next thing that was coming, which was being able to travel and be in uncomfortable situations and still be able to hold my head up and still be able to walk through them with confidence, knowing who I was and knowing what I brought to the table. Mm-hmm. I needed that time of recognizing that what is in you is necessary. What is in you is authentically yours. It's important. And you are only in the spaces that you are in because you are bringing you to those mm-hmm. spaces. What God put in me opened those doors. It took me forever to catch it that you're only here because of who you are. If you weren't you, if you didn't make the mistakes you've made, if you didn't have to suffer through the things you suffered through, no one would want to talk to you because you haven't been through anything. Who's going to listen to you when you ain't been through nothing? You didn't learn from what you had been through. And I did. It's reframed adversity. It reframed struggle. It reframed failure, that it was necessary. You learn, you grow, you become better. Don't do it again, right? Or figure out how to avoid that in the future. 
And then you love on other people with that. So it's much easier to love people when I've learned to love me through my own mess. Interestingly enough, through that time when I had come home um, to have my son, I met Liv through actually Robert Thomas. Uh, introduced me to Liv. And so she needed a background singer. And I was working on my album at the time, um, my first album. And I just, I agreed. I agreed that I, I heard, I met her, I heard her music. She was working with Sidel and it was great. It was good vibes, good times. So I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. Um, and, and that was an ego thing. I had to really put my pride aside and say, I'm going to do this. Why not? I like harmony. I like background. It's cool. But I really wanted to do my own album. I feel like had I done my own album, I wouldn't have been ready anyway, in hindsight, right? Um, but but I did. I said, yeah, sure, I, I'll do this and work with her off and on for a long time. There were many formations and iterations of her background singers. Uh, sometimes I wasn't, sometimes I was. Um, finally, we settled on myself and Ashley, who coincidentally is my cousin. <laughs> and I don't know if we fully knew that when we first started talking, but as we were talking names and family and all that stuff, it was like, oh, girl, we family. But it was a great blend. The blend of myself, my voice, Ashley's voice, and Liv's voice, it was it was fabulous. Between the singing, you know, dance steps and like creativity, you know, arranging on the spot, just it was this beautiful time of creativity. And and we just worked well together. Um, also, you know, our, our our timbers balanced out. Ashley has a much higher kind of childlike timbre, whereas I have this kind of rich grandma timbre, you know what I mean? And live is somewhere in between there with the rock and roll thing. So it's like this all all ends of the spectrum. Like we have highs, we have mids, we have lows. I'm the lows, Ashley was highs, Liv was mids. It was just a very interesting mix. So when we when we locked, oh man, oh man. Like it was goosies. It was like, whoa, it was great. That project is is the harmony. We just went in the studio all like on one mic and just hit it wow. together, right? Cause she wanted that that feeling. And so that's what we did. And it was just, it was great. Um, she shared a lot of information with us about her being on the road with Prince, which was really cool. Um, so we learned a lot vicariously kind of through her and like hoping and wishing and praying like, man, it'd be so cool to be able to go do that. Um, and then when he actually did produce her project, we were able to, to come and, and that's when we did a lot of recording and shot the music video. And it was just like, wow, this is 2013. So I'm telling you like right after 2012, when I hit rock bottom, I got myself established finally by August of of 2013. By October, we were shooting a music video. And then December, we're flying to the Mohegan Sun to open up for Prince. And it's like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? What what is my life? I, I remember Ashley and and, and Marquay came to my door at three or four o'clock in the morning. Like, did you get the news? And I was like, first of all, why are you here at four o'clock in the morning? What's happening? I thought somebody had died. What's wrong? You know, in my bathrobe, you know what I mean? Just, and they're like, no girl, we are, we're going. It's time to go. And I was like, quit my job tomorrow. I'm out, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, I just worked a bunch of odds and stuff to make sure, you know, ends meet. But I'm like, I just got this apartment. I just got this job. 
you know, we're we're traveling doing our thing, and it's just like, oh, what am I what am I gonna do? So this has kind of been my artist life of like, I got a great job, I'm stable, I'm doing the stable thing, I'm doing the responsible thing, and then some amazing opportunity in music shows up, and you're just like, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, I'm a singer. I have to, I can't not do this. So it's been a really crazy journey of like, you know, following this path. I wasn't a background singer for Prince yet, which is really funny. Liv and us, we were the ladies. They called us the ladies. We got invited to sing a couple songs with Liv off of her project at the Palladium in LA. And we were all on stage. We had all rehearsed together. We were all on stage. We had done the Purple Takeover in Anaheim uh, for the Arsenio Hall show. And so you just kept seeing us with Prince and his singers. Mm -hmm. You know, he has three, Liv, Shelby, and Elisa. Then you would see Ashley and Saida. So it looked like Prince had five singers because we were always on the stage. And we had learned a lot of their like encore songs and we we had been studying and practicing and like, it was about preparation, being prepared in case we were ever needed. We, we weren't trying to take anyone's places. We just said, we don't want to be caught not ready. Do you know this medley? Yep, great. He let us come on and sing with the, with the, all the ladies. And it was cool. And Prince loved it. He just, like, he had a little mini choir behind him. He was like, yeah, you know? It was just a full sound to have five women, powerful women, just going in, you know, having a good time on that yeah. stage. So um, I remember he called me out to sing. And it was so many celebrities in the room because it's Prince. So, you know. And he wanted me to sing Rocksteady. And I didn't know it. I couldn't believe it. My best friend loves Rocksteady. And so I've heard Rocksteady millions of times, but I didn't know it well enough to sing it. And he was like, sing Rocksteady. And I was like, I can't. <laughs> and he was like, go back. <laughs> I died. The lesson that I learned from 2012 kicked in. So, because encore, right? So for that encore, I, I didn't hit it. And I went to the back and I was so devastated and I felt so terrible and I thought that was it. And my self-talk was so negative. And I went into the mirror and I spoke to me. And that was probably the first time that I recognized I, the Saida deep down, was talking to me. I, and I told myself, it's over. That moment is gone. It'll never come back. But the next time he tells you to sing, you sing. It's going to come again. Your chance will come again. And when it does, you go for broke. You hear me? And I was just like, okay. It was the best and weirdest thing ever. Backstage at the Palladium, there is a mirror. I don't know if that mirror is still there, but somebody's going to take a picture of that mirror one day and show me. I talked to myself in that mirror. We went back on stage because we had another encore. And he took his microphone off the stand, put it in my mouth and said, Sing. I took that microphone and I wailed. <laughs> I wailed. I sang for my life. You understand? And I left it all out there. Mm -hmm. I went in. And Prince was like, <laughs> it was like proud dad moment. Later on that night, and I'll leave it here because there's so much more to the story, but Dave Chappelle came up to me and hugged me that night and said, you don't know what you did to me tonight. And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> it was just, 
it was a, wow, wow. When you got out your own way and allowed you to be who you are, whatever came out of you, I don't know what came out. Whatever came out of me blessed people in that room. Dave Chappelle was one of them. Later on, I was interviewed by a reporter at Essence where he accidentally called me an MPG background singer because that's what he had seen all night. Who knew that that's what it was going to be? Because I wasn't at the time. I was named one of the newest MPG background singers. And that night set in motion lots of things that were to come. But it was just impacting the people in that room, um, being recognized by great artists, artists that I admire, just just being able to be me, allowing Prince, allowing me to just to even showcase at all. He shared his mic. He shared his stage with me. Like it's it's validating. It was I needed it to feel like the next level was for me, that it was achievable, that that big stage I did belong on. Because I definitely had insecurities of did I even belong there? And I had other people telling me that I didn't belong there, telling me that I didn't look right, telling me that that it wasn't my show, wasn't for me, wasn't about me. Pretty much, you know, you a background singer, stay back there. And that night for me reminded me, no, you're not. That's something you can do. But that is not who you are. That is not the cap for you. You know, I've known from a young age that I was a, a teacher, counselor. They call me Mama Sai. Rightfully so, because I'm a little bossy, but I'm also very nurturing. It is the Leo in me, you know, it's that queen energy. It's, it is. It's queen mother energy. And I've always had it. It didn't, it didn't, I was born with this. <laughs> um, and so that has informed kind of what I recognize that I love. I love teaching. I love sharing. I love telling these stories. I love extracting the lessons and and hopefully giving someone hope for their journey. Like that to me is my greatest joy. Um, I love when I have these new singers that are coming up and they're watching. I know that my colleagues, people who I love and admire, have watched me and have extracted and gleaned from how I show up. And I'm okay with it. (laughs) It makes me happy to know that you saw value in what I brought and that you were able to pull something from how I showed up. That's the legacy for me. I know that I'm to teach. I know that my job is to n- not get all this knowledge and information and hold it. I feel better. I feel alive when I'm sharing it. I feel I feel on purpose and on brand when I'm offering to other people, whether I'm on a stage offering my heart or I'm in a you know, on a Zoom call offering my techniques and my style or my, my you know, how I show up to a gig. How do I show up at, at, a, at the studio? How do I show up to a writing session? Like giving that away for me is, is the next level. That's the legacy. You don't want to go through all this and you die and everything died with you. Like, why? Why would you do that? So I think this next thing, along with just, you know, putting my music into the world, I'm not done. I have 
lots of music that I want to share and more stories that I want to get out there. I'm still living. So I want to, you know, I'm learning lessons. I want to share those lessons. But definitely the, the legacy of, of training up the next artist, you know, is, is something that I'm really working towards and developing right now. How can I get that information to the next? I, I will say music, it's just a unique thing that it really does bridge those gaps. If I do a show, you're going to see a mix of people at my shows. A couple things have had to happen with gentrification. I had to convince myself that this is still my neighborhood. I don't care who lives here. This is, I belong here like everybody else belongs here. This is still my neighborhood. Every restaurant, every bar, every space that is on in this area, I have the right to be in it. And I'm going to go and I'm going to sit and I'm going to eat and I'm going to enjoy. What I appreciate, at least, is that a lot of the owners of these spaces feel the same way. This is still your space. And I am welcomed in those spaces. I patronize those spaces. They appreciate my dollar like they appreciate the other dollars. So I, I respect that, that at least there is some level of consciousness that says, please don't feel like you cannot be in the space. Come be in the space. I would definitely love to see us being able to live in this area. Uh, but that, to me, is a deeper issue than just what color you are. If you're poor, you're screwed in this city. It's just straight up. I, I'm a Black woman. I'm a Black woman. I have the same fears. I deal with the same stuff. The only reason why I'm able to live in this neighborhood is because I was in, able to get into a program that specifically allowed me to stay in this area. That's the only reason. It is Portland Community Reinvestment Initiative. So PCRI has been a blessing to my life and allowed me to stay in a house on, on right in the middle of, of, the, of the city and right in the middle of Northeast Portland, um, very close to where I've always grown up. And that program was specifically to keep you know, people of color and lower income people in the area so that they weren't being pushed out. And so, you know, that's a blessing. I don't know that I'll be able to stay there for a lot longer because my life has changed drastically and significantly um, since I got in the program. But I know that that's the reason why I've been able to be in this neighborhood and stay in this neighborhood. But I'm still a black woman in Oregon. I'm still afraid to live in certain areas. I'm still afraid of the police. Even if I see a car tailgating me too close, I'm checking to see, is it, is it, does it look like an undercover cop car? Is it siren? I'm checking. I'm paranoid on a regular basis in the city of Portland, period, because that's how I grew up. I grew up with that fear, and that fear doesn't go away. I have to force myself to still stay in these spaces and, and try to um, compress my feelings or my fears of being discriminated against. Just yesterday, a gentleman checked my purse at the door. I didn't see him checking anybody else's purse. He said he did. And another white guy said he checked his, his bag. I was like, thank you. I needed to be reassured that I wasn't being discriminated against in this space. I needed to hear that. <laughs> Why did I need to hear that? Why was there a need in me still to not feel like I was being singled out because it's in me that that piece is just there i have to live with that every day that paranoia that some one of these white people hates me one of these white people could kill me one of these white people have an uncle that's a cop and i might get shot one of these white people 
you know, is KKK. One of these white people is a skinhead and, and wants to see my whole race dead. That fear is a constant fear that we have to walk around with, that I need to really pick and choose. This is the only neighborhood that I've ever felt safe in is Northeast Portland. I'm gonna be honest, I, I, affordability is huge. Because when there's affordability, that means you have given more, multiple people the opportunity to dwell in the same space. I like to see diversity. I, I, I like white people. White people are right with me. You know what I mean? I grew up with white people. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, it's not, it's, it's not that, oh, you know, kill whitey and tell everybody to send everybody home. No. I just, I just want to be able to live next to my white neighbor and we'd be neighborly. That we could be friends. We can talk. We can have block parties and, and our kids can play together. Like, it's an affordability thing. Make it affordable for us to live together side by side and build that community. You know, I, and even if you are a weirdo and we never talk, at least I can see that you're there. You know what I mean? That's fine. It's, it's, I don't want to be pushed into this little box. I don't necessarily always want to live with people who look like me. If that's the case, I'd move to the South, which I might. I might. Because there is something to that. There is something to living in Atlanta and everywhere you go, the, the banker is black. And the, <laughs> you know, your grocery store, you, if somebody's pumping a gas, they black. Like, it's, it's, it's something to that. There is a beautiful community around that. But that's just not how I grew up. I'm okay with growing up in spaces where it is diverse and I can see lots of different people and I can learn about lots of different cultures. Um, but... It's for me, it's just about affordability. I think there's a lot of cultural things to do here. I think there's a lot of events. Last Thursdays are coming back. Y'all come down. We're, we're doing a little situation. Um, but plenty of opportunities for us to come together. Good in the Hood was just last weekend. Great. Hopefully everybody was there. That's, that's available. But when I go home, I'm being forced into this little space that I can afford. And that little space that I can afford, unfortunately, is not as diverse as I would like it to be. I see a lot of Black Lives Matter signs, but if nobody on your block is black, and that's and that's that's just Saida's experience. And and I'm growing, I'm financially growing, I'm making different financial decisions. So you know, I am getting to the point where I, my desire is to, of course, be at the financial level where I can move wherever I want to move, right? And that's a thing. I think that's that's something in our community. Um, that we're we're working on is financial literacy, you know, passing down that information. I work for the Black United Fund of Oregon. There are a lot of programs there that are are trying to make sure that as a people we have what we need. Um, not being blocked from that information, I think, is very important for for lower income families, whether you're a, a family of color or not, just lower income families to have the same information. Thank God we're in this information age where it is a lot more accessible now. It's not just knowledge that is passed down from generation to generation. You know, now people are able to, oh, well, this is how wealth is generated. This is how wealth is passed down. We want to see that happening more for our lower income families and communities. That is how we're going to get ahead. That is the, the equity. We don't have the same equity, right? We may have a level of equality when it comes to accessing certain things like information. You know, everybody can get on Google. That's an equal thing. But 
if your grandfather passed down the information to your dad, your dad passed it down to you, then you have 30, 40, 50 years of, of a head start. Once you get this information, that is great that I've learned, you know, about mortgage and you learned about all this, but you started out with a $50,000 nest egg. I'm starting out with nothing. I'm starting out in debt. Let's go there, right? Because I got passed down debt from my parents who didn't have anything. So I'm at a deficit. You're starting with the seed. We're not equal. That's not equality. That's that's not equitable, right? So we're trying to figure out how to even catch up just to get at ground zero so then we can start building wealth. It would be nice for us to be all at ground zero. Do you know what I'm saying? Or, or not. Maybe, I don't know, somehow we can accelerate, you know, getting, after we get the information, accelerate getting to that starting point so that we can actually take advantage of the knowledge. Because having the knowledge is one thing, but being able to actually take advantage and execute that knowledge is something else. And I think that's, that's what's missing. We're getting the information, but if I don't have the tools to be able to move forward with that information, how does it help me? I don't. I mean, I don't know what that looks like. I don't have the answers for that aside from doing what I can, you know, to try to teach financial literacy and doing what I can to try to build my own net worth and pay off my own debts and, you know, leverage business credit and, you know, doing all the things that I know to do or that I'm learning to do. Um, but it's not easy and it's been a journey and it has taken me years just to get here. And I feel like here is where some people are starting at 25. You know, at, and I'm 40 something. So, you know, it's, I have a lot of catch up to do, but I'm also optimistic about my ability to earn, my ability to learn and grow. And I, I refuse to stay in that, in that space of being or feeling like a victim. Like, no, get the information, get the knowledge. You know, don't spend too much time dwelling on what's not, uh, because I believe all things are possible. You never know the, the trajectory of your life, you don't know who you're gonna meet. You don't know what opportunities are coming your way, and that is something I've learned. Of course, we're going to school on a scholarship that I didn't apply for. Saida so in five years will be, thank you for putting in the work. Saida so in 10 years, enjoy yourself. In five years, there are some personal goals that I I want to achieve. Um, And I feel like I'm I'm moving into a season of grind. Or I would say a season of rapid flow. And it's going to require a lot of me. And I would like to encourage myself to rise to the occasion. Be okay with the hard things. Do the hard things. And so my prayer, my hope is that in five years, I can look back and say, thank you for doing the work. Thank you for doing the hard things. Thank you for putting in the time, the effort. You know, thank you for for sucking it up, taking those punches, taking those bumps and growing. And in 10 years, I want to look back and see that I get to enjoy the fruits of that labor that I labored for the five and I just, I want to see the harvest. I want the harvest to be in and then to enjoy, enjoy my work, enjoy what I've created. 
have fun, enjoy it. Not to stop. I don't, I don't anticipate. I said, I want to be working into my 80s and 90s, honestly. I want to still be teaching or building, creating legacy, fundraising for the causes I choose to champion. Like, I want to be old and young at the same time, you know? I want to be busy and active, and I want the things that I have created to be thriving and flourishing, but I want to be able to come and go and do as I please. This episode was sponsored by Oregon Humanities and the Oregon Community Foundation. Written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Dominic Armstrong. You can see more of Saida's work on Instagram at Saida underscore right, or on Twitter at Saida Wright. That's S-A-E-E-D-A-W-R-I-G-H-T. If you have any questions or feedback about the show, please feel free to reach out at futureprairie.com or on social media at Future Prairie.